I need you to turn to your person on your right and say, happy birthday. Now turn to the person on your left and say, happy birthday. You might be wondering what birthday I am referring to. I am referring to the 50th birthday of this invention, the cellular telephone. And in fact, the person in that image is the founder of the cellular phone technology. That is Martin Cooper. He is still alive. He is 94 years old. And did you know that the first call that was ever made from a cellular phone, Martin did it, he called a fellow scientist at a rival laboratory to tell them that he had done it. In other words, the first phone call that was ever made was nerd trash talking between two scientists, which is just fantastic. But if you've been around for a long time, you might recall some of these different instruments. Do you remember when they were mounted in your car? or how they got even a little more exciting if you were able to carry it with you. These things, initially, the first models of cell phones were $4,000 and they weighed almost three pounds and you had to carry it with a little briefcase in order to how to do so. Do you remember how exciting it was to get to the next iteration of this when you would get to the Blackberry or AKA the Crackberry? Do you remember they were so addictive that people would sit there and just peck away at that message or that email that you could take this technology in your pocket and how vastly different it is today to have a supercomputer in your pocket. I mean, can you imagine a world without Angry Birds and Pokemon Go and Twitter and TikTok so the Chinese can spy on us without sending any spies to the United States? Did I say that out loud or was that just a part of the inner commentary. There is a BC and an AD with regards to cellular phone technology. My children can't fathom that I grew up in an era where we didn't have cell phones, that we didn't use them. And then our lives started to change. There was a new reality. There was a new way of connecting, a new way of relating, a new way of communicating. I mean, in fact, it's a new way of living, right? That we can't imagine life without them. There's BC and there's AD with regards to cell phones. Imagine how big it is to think and to dream about the B.C. and the A.D. of Jesus Christ. And that last week at Easter, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that is the true hinge of history. And this week, as we make our way continue through the book of Matthew, we rewind back to our Matthew reading where we literally get to kind of the halfway point and Matthew chapter 14 of the 28 chapters that is the journey of Matthew. And so I invite you to turn in your Matthew journals or, and if you don't have one, we'd love for you to grab one on the way out in the Williams Center or somewhere else. But you can also grab one of the Bibles that we've provided for you to use in the pew rack in front of you to Matthew chapter 14. For you see, Jesus ushers in a new reality. Jesus announced his ministry by doing so and by saying that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is available in a whole new way that it wasn't available before because of in and through Jesus. And so 
one of the things that we discover is that Jesus' focus was that God's kingdom was coming on earth as it is in the heavens. And the way that Matthew tells the story of Jesus begins with a clash of, of, of kingdoms that what happens originally is as he's telling the Christmas story, unlike in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew tells it with the color and the texture and the hue of helping us to understand that there's the kingdom of Herod the Great and there's the kingdom of Jesus and how different these two kingdoms are. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 14, Herod's kingdom is still at work. The, the kingdom is split into four different provinces at this point, but Herod's children, his sons, are, are still in charge. And so the Herod that we're looking at in this story is not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas. And this is a moment in the story where we are going to get to see the incredible contrast in the question of do you want to live in Herod's kingdom or do you want to live in Jesus' kingdom? More often than not, when we read the Bible, we only read one story at a time. And because of that, we miss out in the narrative unfolding of what happens in the Gospels of the contrast between one and the other. We're going to start reading about Herod's kingdom in Matthew chapter 14, starting at the third verse. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John, this is John the Baptist here, had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths, and his guests commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus, quite the birthday party, Herod. What we see here is a table, a party for Herod, and that this tells us a little bit about what Herod's kingdom is like. Did you notice some of the attributes as we read the story of Herod's kingdom? That there's anger and control and fear and desire and manipulation and violence. This is a picture of what Herod's kingdom is actually like. Herod is angry because he has stolen his brother, his half-brother technically, Philip's wife as his own. And John the Baptist is publicly critical of that. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And just because you're a powerful figure, Herod, doesn't mean you should be able to have any woman that you want. And so he's angry. And he tries to control John and his message and his movement by putting him into prison. And yet he's afraid. He wants to kill John and and yet he's not willing to do that because, because he's afraid of the people. And yet while he's at this party, his granddaughter is dancing in such a way that Herod's desire is kindled and is out of control. And he promises to give her anything that she wants. And so the family manipulation and the politics take place that leads to violence. Anybody want to go to a Herod birthday party? Anybody know any places, any workplaces, 
any communities that share some of these qualities? This is what we are being saved from. This is the kingdoms of the world left to their own devices. And yet in this next story, we see Jesus' kingdom and an incredible contrast at a different table of how this is very different from Herod's table and Herod's kingdom. And so let's keep reading in the story of Matthew chapter 14 and let's start reading in the 13th verse. And now when Jesus had heard this, in other words, about the news of John the Baptist, his own cousin dying, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were all what? satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Jesus pulling the kingdom of Israel back together. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. Do you see how incredibly different this celebration, this gathering, this meal of Jesus is from that of the meal that we just read about in the celebration for Herod? That in the place of Herod where there's anger and there's fear and there's manipulation and there's control and all of these other attributes leading up to violence, here's what Jesus' celebration was like. Here's what Jesus' kingdom is like. If Herod's representative of what we are saved from, here is what we are saved for. We are saved for compassion. Even though Jesus is grieving the loss of his cousin and his dear friend, he has compassion on the crowds. But he doesn't just feel something for them, he heals them. He changes their future by providing his healing presence. He makes them whole. He unites this disparate community of people who have gathered from all these different towns, and he brings them together. And then it is his provision that provides satisfaction. In the kingdoms of this world, you will never be experiencing true satisfaction. It is only in the kingdom of God. And that in that kingdom, there is abundance. It is not just enough to survive. There is enough to thrive. There is no scarcity mindset in the kingdom of God. And this is what we are saved for, to live this way. There's a B.C. and an A.D. in regards to the ushering in of God's kingdom. And you and I have the invitation, the opportunity to be involved and to live into this kind of kingdom. I don't know how anybody would want to choose the former over the latter. I think the main question is, how do you live in God's kingdom? How do you tap into it? 
How do you get into God's kingdom and share in that kingdom? I grew up in the greater metropolitan cultural center of Waco, Texas. And the religious question growing up when you grow up in Waco, Texas is what kind of Baptist are you? My first job out in seminary was working in midtown Manhattan. The question of what kind of Baptist are you is not the pressing question for New Yorkers. And so I had to learn how to relate to a more secular society. And I found that initially I came from a culture and a place where I had a harder time translating what I believe to that secular society. I read a little book in the 1990s by an author by the name of Henry Nouwen called Life of the Beloved. And in that book, he described describing the spiritual life of Christ to one of his secular friends. And he bases that book on this passage of Matthew chapter 14 around these four words, chosen, blessed, broken, and given. And he describes this as the pathway for participating and living and leaning into God's kingdom, chosen, blessed, broken, given, chosen, blessed, broken, given, chosen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you. The first step in being able to live into the kingdom of God is understanding that God has elected, God has selected, God has chosen you. Most people either know that they are chosen by Christ or they are trying to do everything they can to figure out how they can be elected by the patterns of this world. We are all diligently doing what we can to see that we're right and that we're okay and that we've been chosen. The thing that Jesus does that's different is that there's nothing that we can do in order to earn that chosenness. It's something that God has already done for you in and through Jesus. You have been chosen. And when you accept that, you enter into God's kingdom and family. And when you are chosen and when you experience that and when you receive that, your eyes will be open and you will see blessings beyond your wildest dreams. This is far different from the hashtag blessed. In fact, in the Greek, this isn't even the word that, you know, blessed in, in Greek often is a word that means happy, but it's kind of a deeper form of happiness. The word here for chosen and then blessed in the pattern of what Jesus says when it says that he took the bread and then he blessed it and then he broke it and he gave, that this is the pattern of the spiritual life. It's the pattern of entering into God's kingdom. The word for blessed there is what we get in our English word, the word eulogy. The very thing that you would do as you stood at the front of a church to give good words about someone who is deceased. David Brooks says, 
You can live for resume virtues or you can live for eulogy virtues because those two values tend to be very different things. You and I have the opportunity with our eyes open because of our belovedness, because of our chosenness, is that we will start to see the world through the prism of blessing and that we start to be able to share the good words about what we see around us, that the way that we think and the way that we orient our lives, the way that we relate to other people is through that lens of blessing. Chosen, blessed, broken. You don't need to do anything to try to become more broken. You just need to recognize that you are. I am often asked why most churches have not experienced their congregations coming fully back on the other side of COVID. The short answer, they don't feel like they need to. Jesus says that he has come not for the healthy, but for the sick. And if there's nothing wrong with you, if there's nothing that you need, then you're not going to see any reason to come back to church. And yet I know that for me, I am a sinner redeemed by grace. And that like the alcoholic that needs to go back to AA because they know that they stand on the lifeline of the precipice of sobriety. For me, church is that reality, that weekly calibration and connection in community of the tangible nature of the gospel. Chosen, blessed, broken, and finally given. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave. It is out of the generosity of God that we enter into, share, and participate in God's kingdom. You are never more Christ-like than when you offer yourselves to someone or to a need. I have a friend from Southern California that I got to know. Uh, he was launching a ministry. His name's Brad Formsma when we used to live there. His whole desire was to watch people, communities, groups, individuals just unlock the power of generosity. He said the only time we basically think about generosity is in a fundraising capacity, but in reality, it is a way of the Christian life. And so his passion was that like, he could influence workplaces by helping workplaces discover what does it mean to be generous, or he could impact a, a particular neighborhood or a school by helping them to understand what would a generous neighborhood look like. His most recent endeavor is his own heart being broken by the state of our schools and how our schools are based out of a scarcity mindset. And so he and his team have developed a curriculum for helping to try to create a generous atmosphere in a school. It's called the Generous Classroom Movement. And I want you to get a glimpse of it by watching the screens.
Life can be unkind. A moment of defeat, a whisper in the hallway, one look of judgment can send you spiraling. It is easy to get lost in the noise, to find yourself in a crowded room feeling totally alone. But we often forget that living in a selfish world doesn't mean we have to live like it. What if we rewrote the story? What if we chose to respond with empathy and compassion what if we chose to give to a world that doesn't deserve it? What would happen then? Like a stone, hitting water, you would start a ripple effect of change, inspiring a wave of generosity that could transform not only the hallways of our school, but the wounds of a broken world. You could be the difference. Living generously does not require you to be a grown-up or to have a full piggy bank. It only requires a willing heart that moves into action. And when we answer that call, when we listen to that little nudge in our heart to take the step, to offer our time, to give what we have, it does something in us too. When we give, Something bubbles up in us that we could never muster on our own. Generosity plants a seed of joy that cannot be ignored. Each day presents countless opportunities to think beyond yourself. Let's not miss them. Let's shock the world with our giving. You have the power to start a ripple effect of kindness that can change the world. So, in a world where you can be anything, choose to be generous. It only takes one moment to inspire a lifetime of impact. Like the sharing of a pink pencil to a panicked fourth grader. All right, class, let's stand up. There was a VC and an 
that story. There is a before the moment of the pink pencil and there is a moment afterwards. That each day truly does present itself with countless opportunities for us to be able to live beyond ourselves. That as God's kingdom is advancing on earth, it can confront the kingdoms of Herod and this world. And we can live in the eternal kingdom of God's goodness and God's reign that will last forever. In the book that I shared with you before where I learned of that fourfold pattern of what happens in Matthew chapter 14 where the same thing of what we do at the communion table when Jesus took, when he chose the bread and after giving thanks he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. That pattern that unfolds the spiritual life and the power of sharing in God's kingdom. Henry Nouwen writes these words. How different would our life be were we truly able to trust that it multiplied and being given away? How different would our life be if we could but believe that every little act of faithfulness, every gesture of love, every word of forgiveness, every little bit of joy and peace will multiply and multiply as long as there are people to receive it and that even then there will be leftovers. What happens in God's kingdom is the multiplier effect of eternal investments of what God is doing into all eternity. And that the decision that is before followers of Jesus Christ in every age is to make sure that we are choosing to live in God's kingdom as opposed to the kingdoms of this world. And so this is the choice that we must make. And it is the choice where the movement of Peachtree will thrive. Let's pray together. Our loving God and Father, we're so grateful. We're grateful that you have first called and reached out to be near to us. And will you help us now to imagine a world where that calling, that vocation takes us into new and more possible understandings of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that we have been saved from the patterns of this world where anger and control and fear and desire and manipulation and violence do not have the last word. That you have saved us for a very different kind of kingdom, one of compassion and of healing and uniting and of your abundance that springs forth into eternity. And so I pray right now for anybody who has not discovered their true belovedness, that they have been chosen by you. Help us not to seek our own okayness or our own righteousness, but to understand that before the foundations of the world, you have elected us. Lord, help us to live and to see everything through the prism of blessing, to share the good words of what we need to think and to say and to lean into the brokenness that you have healed and redeemed. And most of all, just as you came to give yourself away, may our lives be a part of that continuing gift of your ransom, where there could be generous classrooms and generous churches and generous workplaces, generous homes and generous communities, even here in Atlanta. And so, God, help us to want to live and to thrive in your kingdom. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.